From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is John Valverde, President and CEO of YouthBuild USA. John joined YouthBuild in 2017 after decades of work as an advocate creating access to opportunity for formerly incarcerated people and those who have historically been defined by their challenges instead of their potential. John began working with imprisoned individuals in 1992 and has since worked to ensure for them access to HIV AIDS counseling, high school equivalency instruction, alternatives to violence programs, and college education. He led an initiative to develop Hudson Link, delivering the first privately funded accredited college program in New York's prisons. More than 1,200 students in prison have graduated from Hudson Link, which has grown to serve nine college partners in five correctional facilities. John is a Marino Fellow of the Aspen Institute's Sector Skills Academy, a Pahara Aspen Education Fellow, co-chair of the National Service Civic Engagement and Volunteering Pillar of the Partnership for American Democracy, a member of the New York State Council on Community Reentry and Reintegration, a member of the Leadership Council of 24-7, the People's Filibuster for Gun Safety, and an elected member of the Council on Criminal Justice. John holds a Master of Professional Studies in Urban Ministry from the New York Theological Seminary and a Bachelor's Degree in Behavioral Science from Mercy College. On this episode of Blue Sky, John Valverde will tell us about the history of Youth Build USA and the highly impactful work they're doing today. You'll also learn how John's own personal experience informs his work possibly more so than any leader you'll ever encounter. And I'll say this up front. If you're not moved by John's life story, we here at the Optimism Institute might have to declare you to be clinically unmovable, if that's a thing. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. John Valverde, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Happy to be with you here today, Bill. Thank you. And uh, for those of us, for those in the audience who have not heard of Youth Build, could you just describe the work you do and um, some of the history of Youth Build? Sure. Uh, Youth Build works with young people age 16 to 24 who are not in school and not working. And we re-engage them in their education and career pathway training in leadership development and service to their community and provide the wraparound services that they'll need to be successful in overcoming the barriers that have prevented their success in the past. And so that model uh, engages young people for nine to 12 months uh, so that they can build the skill sets and mindsets for lifelong learning, leadership, and livelihoods. And it seems like a unique age group that you're serving in terms of, I think of Boys and Girls Club and those sorts of organizations with younger kids. Um, it seems like you're you're getting people in a very important juncture in their life. Is that fair to say? Uh, that's absolutely fair to say. And sadly, and I, I can share this with you openly, uh, we hear so much talk about the K through 12 system or the post-secondary uh, system and engaging young people in those uh, places. But there's a group of people 
as many as 5 million in our country and more than 300 million around the world, age 16 to 24, who don't fall into either of those categories and often get passed over year after year and sadly generation after generation. So Youth Build stands with a subset of young people. We call them opportunity youth uh, because if given the opportunity, they can thrive. And if given that opportunity, they can become such assets for our communities and our world. But yes, we are working with a group of and subset of young people that are often overlooked and, and passed over. And it's interesting in terms of the power of language and, and uh, how it can help you be more optimistic. Opportunity youth really struck me because I, I read somewhere, you know, some people call these people marginalized or at risk, but opportunity youth changes the whole conversation. Yes. And, and the other term that you heard very often was disconnected. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we prefer opportunity youth. I'm not sure the young people in, <laughs> embrace opportunity youth. They probably want to be called leaders or something else. But uh, it's an absolutely positive, optimistic framing. And yours is a, is a huge organization. You're in charge of Youth Build USA, 46 states in the United States, I believe. And then Youth Build is in 18 countries around the world. Do I have that right? That's right. We're, we're a global organization. We have about 275 locations around the world uh, that stand with these young people and support them in local communities. And Bill, I think it's important to just say it out loud that Youth Build only works in communities that are, here go the labels again, but economically disadvantaged, vulnerable, or to use your word, marginalized. We only work in those communities. And, and as you can imagine and understand, uh, these communities do experience more violence, more uh, higher rates of, of health issues, education issues, unemployment, uh, trauma, etc. So we, we are working in these places all over the world. And Youth Build USA is the global headquarters. Uh, and so USA is... is um, uh, a misnomer in some ways because we're actually probably Youth Build Worldwide, Youth Build Global, yes. but we're incorporated as Youth Build USA, but supporting programs all over the world. And from from fairly humble beginnings, as I understand it, 1978, Dorothy Stoneman, East Harlem, and she ran the organization right up until you succeeded her. So you're the first non-founder CEO of this organization. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, I love to share in, in 1978, Dorothy asked young people, uh, she had seen so many, she was teaching there and she had seen so many uh, young people just hanging out on the corners, right? As uh, that, that image uh, in the 70s and 80s. And she approached them and asked them, if you had adult support, what would you do to transform your community? And they said, we'd take back the abandoned buildings, we'd rehab them, and we'd create affordable housing uh, for our, our community. So I like to say uh, the origins are that youth build affordable housing, and that's where Youth Build comes from. Yes, and, and from there, expanded and grew, and, and um, she led the organization until 2016, and I took over in 2017. So I'm only the second uh, CEO in the history of Youth no Build. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. From all reports, you're doing an amazing job. From the minute you hear John talk about his work, 
You can sense the optimism he brings to the challenges his organization works to address. And note that as someone overseeing a complex worldwide organization, he's incredibly clear, concise, and inspiring when he speaks about YouthBuild's mission and the group of people they're trying to reach. Regarding YouthBuild's target audience, I asked John to talk more about their focus on young people involved with the criminal justice system, and also how this work is motivated by John's own personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said it earlier, some people will say marginalized, disconnected, at risk. We call them opportunity youth. But I think it's mostly not that we serve the hardest population to to support. It's that we support a population with the most barriers. And one of the most significant barriers that the young people of YouthBuild are encountering is involvement with the criminal justice system, having been arrested, maybe on probation, maybe they've been uh, uh, almost sentenced as an alternative to incarceration and a diversion program to a local youth build program to hopefully uh, overcome their involvement with the system and uh, regain their footing in, in society so that they don't have to serve a jail or prison sentence. And the young people of Youth Build self-report uh, that one-third, about uh, 33% of them self-report that they've been arrested or that they're on probation. So it may be as high as 50% uh, who, are, who are in that category. So it is an, an essential part of the work local youth programs are doing, along with everything else that comes with that bill, uh, depending on the geographic location of youth build, and that's the uh, one of the blessings of, of the model. You may be engaged in opioid overdose prevention, human trafficking, gang violence, uh, the unhoused and youth homelessness, and working with young people who've been involved with the criminal justice system. And I'm sure, I assume, a lot of the work that you do, a big part of it is trying to create a sense of hope and optimism in these folks who are at a difficult time in their life. And it strikes me when I first met you that you are the sort of embodiment of what their future could be. If you're comfortable, could you tell us about your own background with incarceration and your own history and and explain why <laughs> it's pretty obvious why you have such a passion for this work? Sure. Happy to do that. And um you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a leader of lived experience and, and grateful that uh, that's acknowledged and recognized as a value to the world. And I'm really grateful to YouthBuild and the board of directors of YouthBuild for, you know, seeing something in me that maybe I didn't even see in myself when I applied for, for this position. I uh, grew up in New York City, raised by a single mom, uh, struggling to make ends meet. Uh, I guess it can be said to be a generic uh, a story, but uh, first in my family born in this country. Uh, my family's from Costa Rica, first in my family uh, to go to college. And so journeyed through all of that and made a terrible decision when I was 21 years old that resulted in my incarceration. And I was sentenced to 30 years in prison, of which I would have to serve a minimum of 10 years before I would be eligible for parole. And early on in my incarceration, I, I reconnected with my father. I had been estranged from him. 
And he said to me, accept full responsibility for your crime, seek to make amends and say yes as much as you can to help others and you will find purpose and meaning and be free. And I didn't think I could survive a week in prison, let alone the 10 years that I, I would need to serve before I would even be eligible for parole. But I so wanted to rebuild my relationship with my father and his words. I, I probably wasn't sure what they meant, but that's what I did. I started to say yes. And, and his thinking and my reality was that I was one of the few people who was college educated uh, in prison. So, you know, the average reading and, and math levels are fifth grade or less. And so I was able to support people in learning how to read and advance their uh, basic education. And I even, I, I, I sometimes credit my ability to survive because uh, you can see me, but, um, you know, this is the toughest I've ever looked. So it's not like, <laughs> it's not like I was ever going to be uh, uh, that in, in, yes. uh, as part of my survival, but I, was able to write letters and read letters from family members that the the weapons dealer, the gang leader, the uh, the big shots and and most respected people in in the prison system, I became their teacher, and I went on to uh, uh, complete my bachelor's degree while while in Sing Sing Correctional Facility. So I was in a maximum security prison for 11 and a half years. Of the 16 total years I served, I completed my bachelor's. I completed my master's degree. I have a, a master's in urban ministry, the equivalent of a, a master's in social work from New York Theological Seminary, the only uh, graduate program existing at the time uh, in, in the prison system. And uh, so I completed my, my higher ed, and then I went on to found two nonprofits. Uh, both still exist today. One of them is Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison, which is celebrating 25 years this year. Uh, the other is called Rising Hope, all supporting uh, incarcerated individuals and in advancing their uh, education and uh, obtaining college credits and through Hudson Link, even degrees. I was also the first incarcerated person to take the LSAT, uh, the first incarcerated person to be accepted to law school while still in prison. I never did uh, pursue that. Uh, my mom says I'm a lawyer of a different kind <laughs> now, today. But um, I even won a few uh, uh, soccer championships while I was there. That's probably uh, another reason I was able to to survive uh, uh, because I was good at sports. So, you know, moral of the story is education and sports matter. Yes, <laughs> and can even yes. get you through 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 your incarceration. But I'm very proud and and grateful for the opportunities that were afforded. Uh, to me during my incarceration, uh, you know, an optimistic view of, of being in Sing Sing Correctional Facility was its proximity to New York City. So it had a higher number of volunteers uh, and professors and teachers and counselors and, and others who could travel 45 minutes instead of six hours at some of the more upstate uh, prisons. So I had access to more people who cared about me and could see here and seek to understand me as a human being and help me restore my own humanity. And uh, that commitment 
that my father instilled in me to grow each year, be better each year than I was the year before. One, to make sure that I could never be again be the person I was when I committed my crime, but two, to be more able to contribute to others and contribute to the freedom of others, even though we were incarcerated. And I lost my father in, in an accident three years before my release from prison. So he never got to see me home, never got to see me uh, successful, air quotes, in the way that uh, you know some, some may define success. But I know that he died knowing that I was already free. And uh, today I'm the first formerly incarcerated CEO of a nonprofit with a global mission. And as, as humbling as that is, I think it means less or it means little if it doesn't inspire the young people of Youth Build to believe that anything is possible for them, and if it doesn't inspire society to believe in second chances and maybe even the power of really providing uh, genuine first chances for people uh, so that they never go down the route of, of the justice system and, and incarceration. So I'm grateful to be living out my second chance as the president and CEO of Youth Build USA. There's so much to take in here from John's incredible story. Before we move on, I'd like to pause and caution our audience that for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to describe the events that led to John's incarceration. Some of you might find these details to be disturbing and upsetting as they relate to sexual assault and deadly violence. I asked John's permission to include this information for a number of reasons. The first is that human nature is to wonder what crime it was that led John to receive such a long sentence, and I'd like to remove that distraction for our listeners. The second is that understanding the seriousness of his offense helps to underscore how remarkable his recovery and rebound have been. And lastly, if we're honest with ourselves, I think that many of us could see how, but for our own good fortune, we could find ourselves in a very similar situation. When John Valverde was 21 years old, his girlfriend was raped. John knew who the assailant was. He confronted him, they fought, and John killed him. He was convicted of manslaughter, leading to his sentence of 30 years, with 10 years minimum, before being eligible for parole. Now, with this context, let's think again about what John just told us about his fears entering prison and what his father, from whom he'd been estranged, encouraged him to do. Accept full responsibility, seek to make amends, say yes as much as you can to help others, and you will find purpose and meaning and be free. Wow. And John didn't wait until he was literally free to begin working on this. He began addressing these things while he was still in prison. He worked on his own education and helped fellow inmates with theirs. He read letters from their families and helped them write letters back. He founded two nonprofits to help the incarcerated, and he became the first person ever to take the LSAT test in prison. After taking all of this in from John, I took a deep breath. I paused, and then I asked him to describe the relationship between his father's advice and the work he's done since receiving it. 
my sense is the work you're doing now uh, with a much larger audience than your father might have had is very similar to the work that your father did for you. In other words, paint that picture of hope, inspire people. And it seems to me, as you said, when you, when you entered Sing Sing, Ossining, New York, uh, not too far from New York City, you didn't know if you were going to survive. And it sounds to me like you might not have if, some, if you hadn't somehow connected with your estranged father. Is that fair to say? And, and it seems to me, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that you are doing work that is very similar to that one-on-one work that your dad did with you. You know, I, I love the expression that one conversation can change your life. Yes. And it might take a hundred of those <laughs> before that one yes. Uh, uh, yes. hits you. Uh, but certainly that conversation with my father and the relationship I built with him. You know, when he passed, uh, he was my best friend for sure. And I faced one of the greatest fears that I had to lose my mom or my dad or for me to die in prison. I did have to face that when, when I lost my father. And uh, anyone can, I think, imagine the helplessness of not being able to even visit him or go to the hospital before he passed, all of that. And and I would say uh, my mom, my family, I was very fortunate. There are a lot of people who serve 10, 15, 25 years in prison and never receive a visit from a family member or a friend. So I, I was fortunate in that. I was fortunate that I had education, that I had mentors uh, that supported me inside, counselors that, that supported me inside. But I was also able to access them. And I think that's so important in having a hopeful, optimistic view of the world. If you feel that you have the resources and the access to the resources to advance your life, to overcome an obstacle, to address an issue, to heal uh, from trauma, it's transformative. It's uh, you can see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, or or be the light that shines uh, in the tunnel. And I I've learned over many years now, and and see this as so critical to the way I live my life. And again, inspired by my father and and, and others, that all of us want to be free. We want to be free from guilt and shame. We want to be free from the expectations of others. We want to be free from the need to control our environment so that uh, we avoid looking bad and, and only look good. And the freedom to be truly yourself and not need to prove anymore to anyone who you are, knowing that you're enough, that you matter, that you belong that you can make a difference in the world. Uh, that's what I believe my daily mission is, what my work involves. And I'm, I am so grateful, Bill, to see the young person's light bulb go off. Um, and I hear this sadly, uh, uh, but gratefully too, I hear this all the time for young people, where not for youth build, I'd be dead or in prison. And the other thing they say were it not for youth build, uh, I don't know that I would have ever heard you are somebody and you can be incredible and you can you are a leader and you can make a difference in the world. So it is very similar to, to the idea of my father seeing something in me, believing in me in a way that I 
did not yet believe in myself, that's what Youth Build and the amazing staff all over the world are doing when they stand with young people. So let's talk about those young people, the Opportunity Youth. How do, I'd like to understand your model. How do they find you? How do you find them? How, how does one enter the Youth Build uh, world um, if, if you're one of these youth who's, who has these issues and struggles? Yeah, uh, most often uh, a young person who finds their way to, to Youth Build, uh, it's not the first program uh, that they've been a part of. They, they've tried different things. Uh, they were not successful in the public education system, which is probably a whole separate conversation because it's amazing how many of them thrive in a youth build program and can achieve their high school diploma in a short period of time, uh, but they were not successful in the public ed system. Uh, but they find their way to us mostly by word of mouth. Uh, if if uh, and and a lot of the young people are referred by their family members. So oh, interesting. Uh, a grandmother, for example, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, will will often be the one who went to that resource fair somewhere that heard about youth build. But as I mentioned previously, we'll also have uh, judges uh, uh, direct young people as a diversion from incarceration. Uh, probation officers will, will send young people along. But uh, even the public ed system, uh, I think they're, they're also recognizing in many instances that they might not be the best fit. Uh, and Youth Build can be that kind of support that the young person needs. So there are several routes to, to get to a Youth Build program, but uh, the key is being an anchor uh, program uh, in a community. So we're a critical part of the ecosystem, I like to say, and young people are attracted to us because they believe we are a safe place, a brave place for them to live out uh, the next version of themselves, work on their own transformations and become who they never even realized they could be, but, uh, uh, but others see it. And you mentioned a safe place. Is it, is it a physical place in all of these places? Is there a building that someone goes to that is staffed and, and they come there certain hours of the day? Walk us through how that works. Yeah, it's, uh, Youth Build is essentially like a, a school model. Uh, a distinction would be that 50% of the time is spent in the classroom and the other 50% of the time is spent doing hands-on work. We're seeing more and more of that in learner-centered schools and learner-centered ecosystems, the importance of, of that. And then we, we center the young person in their education. What are their interests? What, how do they want to co-design and co-create? their school or education experience with us. And uh, they're all doing construction. So they're getting high school diploma or equivalency uh, academic support. They're getting career pathway work, all of them in construction, but we're also in healthcare, IT, uh, food service and hospitality, manufacturing and logistics. So depending again, geographically where you are in the country or the world, you may also outside the US be doing more entrepreneurship in informal economies uh, uh, that you don't uh, see here in the US. So that's the young person's experience. And they're like nine to three, like a school day that, that you would experience, uh, but also working on affordable housing projects. And you can imagine this, Bill, it's like a service to your community. But three years later, 10 years later, 
a graduate of Youth Build is walking, holding the hand of their child in their community and saying, I helped build this house and I helped build that house too. And I contributed to this community. And it's just a powerful example for the next generation. So we also like to see our work as two or three generation, the grandmother who <laughs> influences the parent to uh, recommend the young person the youth build, and then it benefits the, the child of that person too. So multi-generation supports. In an interview I did recently with the former CEO and leadership expert, David Novak, he told me he'd never met an effective leader who wasn't an optimist. And here we have another example of a leader who clearly is one. John Belverde does what all great leader optimists must do. He acknowledges that the world has problems. And by the way, his organization is going after some of the toughest. But at the same time, he describes and presents a hopeful pathway to solutions. And if you put yourself in the shoes of someone being led by John, isn't he someone you'd want to follow? Getting back to Youth Build, I asked John to talk about the build part of the organization and how their roots are in the teaching of construction skills to young people and how important a component this still is in their work today. It's not that everyone automatically goes into the construction field after graduation. It's a vehicle. And that's what we like to, to, to speak about with Youth Build. They build assets for their community. It could be housing. It could be painting a senior center. It could be benches for a local park. But this building idea is that you can also build your own life. And as young people do this, some of them have done harm to the community. The community now sees them in a very different light. And so it's transformative for everyone uh, when they go through this experience. But yes, and I didn't mention this earlier, Bill, but Youth Build is a federal program. So a lot of people have heard of Habitat for Humanity, almost household name level, uh, they're they're a, a line in the in the federal budget, and the, they go through the appropriations process each year. Youth Build is also one of those lines, but less known because uh, Youth Build programs are often housed inside a larger community-based organization like the Y or Boys and Girls Clubs or okay. United Way or a Goodwill, or they're part of a workforce investment board, a community college, a housing authority. So uh, so Youth Build, uh, another way to think about Youth Build is Youth Build becomes this powerful element of organizations, larger organizations uh, that believe in the power of love, which is something I want to be sure to name. Yes, the model has uh, education, career, leadership, service, but the foundation of it, and we're unapologetic about naming it, is the power of love. You can think about it as belonging, as character development, as young people being seen, heard, and understood. But you can build the most powerful, effective, uh, resourced career training or academic program or leadership development work if it's not built on a foundation of love, especially for opportunity youth who have journeyed through a certain 
experience in their lives, often involving trauma and all the other barriers I've named, uh, you're just not going to be successful. And I'm grateful that this year, uh, we just kicked off a three-year research project with support from the Templeton Foundation to evidence-based youth build love for the first time in our history. Uh, so the, the name of the project is Harnessing the Power of Love in Character Development and Youth Build Programs. So we're excited wow. uh, about what that means because uh, youth build really does operate in the workforce develop youth workforce development space, uh, the youth education space, but the nexus with youth development and positive youth development is the secret sauce, the magic of youth build and the staff who embrace that approach. Uh, that's what's making a difference in the world. That's what's creating the generation of leaders that we need uh, to create a world that works for everyone. Wow. So you've said a lot and I, and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm, I want to bring it back to you because what you just described is a very complex set of ish, of relationships and organizations and government and nonprofit and colleges. And how in the world do you manage, how do you spend your time? Because it seems to me you've got so many different audiences, uh, folks you're servicing, folks you need to work with and stay in their budget lines. And how does John Valverde manage his time? What, what, is, what are your priorities as you try to lead this incredibly complex but important organization? It's such a great question. And I, I, I have to reflect. I immediately reflected on my experience in prison, um, which probably most people wouldn't think of incarceration in this way. But it was such a powerful training ground uh, for me. And uh, there were years I read 75 books and I taught for 10 years at the college level. I was also the first incarcerated person to have adjunct professor status with uh, Mercy College and Nyack College. Again, Hudson Valley proximity to, to uh, Sing Sing. And I took that very, very seriously. But teaching in the prison setting and teaching your peers mm. whom you will be grading, occasionally <laughs> even failing. Oh, oh uh, and then you have to go back to the yard at oh, the end boy. of the day after class. <laughs> That's a <laughs> it story It develops right you there. as a leader. That's incredible. It develops you as a leader. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the management side of things, the way I organize myself, the reason I wake up every day at 5 a.m., the, the reason I bookend my day, uh, the reason I meditate uh, to center myself. What's so important to say is the power of community. I don't think people think of prison as a community. It's actually like a city, right? It's it's uh, and it's got all these elements in it. But uh, similar to if you can make it in in New York, that saying, you know, you can make it anywhere. Uh, if you can build community and be a leader in a challenging uh, setting like a prison, it's going to give you a certain set of skills. But again, I wanna emphasize uh, the community level here. If you can build connection, build relationship, have empathy, have self and other awareness, you're not gonna survive 16 years in prison without that. 
if you can have a growth mindset and you can be so committed to people with love, leading with love, leading with your heart, leading with empathy, as I named, engaging other people in that way. None of my work today as a CEO would be possible without the community that I've worked to build at Youth Build USA and in the broader network of Youth Build programs, the 275 plus programs around the world. So I can organize my day in a certain way, but I think the most important part of my work is to clear the space for our movement, uh, clear the space of anything that can prevent us from seeing what's possible. And that is optimism, but that is also gratitude, that's hope, and that's the love that we stand for. pretty rare to hear a leader like this speak so directly and powerfully about love. It's been said that kindness is a sign of strength and not weakness, and John is clearly a leader with great strength who leads, as he says, with his heart. And regarding his own optimism and positivity, listening to him describe his time in prison as a training ground, you can see how he's been able to shift his mindset about the toughest time of his life. And you have to appreciate his story about teaching and grading fellow prisoners, then having to run into them at the yard. I gotta be honest, if I'd been that teacher, I'd have been giving out A's right and left. Lastly, I was really taken by his description of his role as clearing the space for his organization to do its work. It's an interesting way to think about what's the most important work to be done at the top of a well-run organization with a clear mission and a strong team. Clear the space to allow them to do the work. Returning to our conversation, I brought up an earlier episode of Blue Sky that related to the hiring of people who, like John, have served time in prison. I wanna make sure we underscore what you've said about um, surviving prison and, and what you learned there. Um, I recorded an episode with a man named Jeff Korzenik, who's written a book called Untapped Talent about second chance hiring. And I find the model to be so inspiring and so important. We have so many people incarcerated in this country, way more per capita than just about any, I think, any country in the world. And we've set up this system of almost life sentences, because even if you get out, you check that box on an employment form and you can't get a job. And you fall back into bad behavior and there's a recidivism result. And I, I think what you said is so important because a lot of us who have never experienced prison, there's this stigma and this fear of taking a chance on someone who has done time. And you make that point that if you can survive that and get out into a job interview, you are probably more resilient. You're going to be more loyal. You're going to be a better employee than just about anybody you could find coming out of college or off the street or wherever. Is that fair to say? Because it seems to me you're the human embodiment of it and you just articulated it really well about what it's like to get through a prison sentence. You know, I, ha I have uh, uh, really great colleagues and, and I, they, they often say, you know, I'm not the exception. I've just been afforded exceptional opportunities. Wow. You know? And I, again, I feel like, like Youth Build is that for, for many young people who are 
stigmatized and not seen and heard for their gifts and talents and intellect, you know, but for their zip code or their past or their upbringing. You know, so I, I truly believe that no one should be defined only by the worst thing that they've ever done, but who they are today and who they can be in the future. And I love what you said because it's so important to us at Youth Build. We don't see our young people as broken. Um, although they've journeyed through challenges that many of us uh, may not have overcome, uh, they are resilient. They have developed skills, but no one's helped reframe them uh, for them to see them as skills and uh, transferable skills that, that will be effective in the world of work. So it, it is true that they can be assets and are assets uh, to companies and to society. And we also need employers and the community at large to see them in that way too. So we engage employers uh, to support Opportunity Youth more as mentors at first, you know, a little bit more handholding at first. Uh, but if you invest in that effort in the start, you are going to get the most loyal, dedicated uh, employee and someone who's going to be committed to the success of the company because them receiving a second chance, or like I said earlier, maybe their first real chance in life, uh, there are people who are going to take that and run and make such a difference for, for you and your company. So if somebody's listening today, you mentioned employers. Um, I mean, there are obvious ways they could support youth build philanthropically with their treasure, um, hopefully possibly with their time and volunteering. Let's talk about employers. So it sounds like you have, do you, do you create relationships with employers in the various places of 46 states where you're operating? And how does that work? And how could someone get involved if this is the first time they've heard about it? Yeah, no, we, we, because we're involved in career pathways work, you know, we, we're deeply committed to ensuring that we're training young people for jobs that exist and that that training can translate into the world of work and employment. Uh, so every Youth Build program is building relationships with local employers. For Youth Build USA at the national level uh, here in the U.S., we're building national partnerships. And, and just yesterday, uh, we announced uh, that Burlington, Burlington Stores, formerly yes. Burlington Coat Factory, yes. rebranded, uh, we just launched a national campaign with them. So we're partnering with 972 of, of their stores across the country uh, to uh, that roundup kind of example. That, uh, would you want to round up or do you want to oh, donate wow. to Youth Build USA? So oh, I want to encourage everyone to go on shopping sprees to, to Burlington between April 10th and, and May 15th, just to share the, the dates out. But uh, along with that, opportunity to fundraise uh, to support local youth build programs. There's the, the opportunity to place young people in employment at Burlington stores, you know, and that's at all levels. And we have that with uh, other companies as well. So yes, uh, we have a partnership team. Uh, we work in different career pathways. We engage a, a global network, national network here in the U.S., uh, to partner with employers that are looking to engage young people 
as employees uh, diversify uh, their their companies. Uh, 85% of the young people in Youth Build are young people of color, and we work in urban, rural, tribal, suburban. Uh, so we're in all these communities uh, 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 across the country, and we welcome the opportunity to engage employers that believe in the power of young people and believe that the future is young. As you know, we have more young people than ever in history and um, we need to work together to ensure that they have the opportunities uh, to be the leaders that we need. And this employment model, we talked about it uh, when I spoke with Jeff and his book, it's called partly called untapped talent because it hasn't been accessed. And at the same time, we have a labor shortage in this country. So so what a perfect sort of win-win-win where it's great for the community to get folks employed and not going back to prison. It's obviously great for the individual. It's great for the company. They need people and they need loyal people and they need people who've been through hardship who can work hard and appreciate the opportunity that they have. So it seems to me that this model is is perfect for today's economy and um, so just a, a classic win-win-win. Yeah, and, and I think the the element of national service, uh, we have one of the largest AmeriCorps grants in the country and one of the, the, the few grants that actually supports opportunity youth to do national service uh, uh, across the, the country. Oh, okay. So it's a formal relationship with AmeriCorps. I wasn't, wasn't aware of that. Okay. Yes. And so, uh, as you can imagine, the marketable skills you gain uh, working on service projects in, in your community and also the benefit of the community seeing the young person differently than they did previously. Uh, that's one element. But even as we work to, again, create this world that works for everyone, service is also a vehicle for young people to work side by side with others who maybe don't look like them, maybe are from a different community, and the power of healing divisions, uh, which is so important for any employer, for our country, uh, for every community, uh, Youth Build is a vehicle even for that. So I really see our collective work uh, to be a way to improve the world improve uh, our country uh, by working with young people and engaging them. They give me hope and there's reason for optimism if we center young people and the power and potential they have to transform communities and the world. Well, John, I think that's a pretty great way to, to wrap up our conversation. And, I, and I'm really glad, well, let's talk a little bit more. I'm really glad that you mentioned AmeriCorps because um, I think a lot of us believe that that some sort of national service would be a wonderful thing to have, and and you know it's we're very thankful that we don't have a need for a military draft right now. But when we did, it was one of the few ways that we brought people from literally all walks of life together because it was a, a mandatory required service. And in the absence of that, we don't have as many opportunities for that. So it's 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 great to hear that you're involved with AmeriCorps because it would seem to me that a lot of what would help the folks you serve is that exposure to people of other backgrounds and sometimes more privilege, more resources to see what that's like and create that hope in them. Is that a, is that a fair way to describe it? Yes. And, and to bring it back to, to my father's uh, words, uh, a way for a young person to find meaning, purpose, and freedom. 
And so you, you add those elements to their service experience. And again, I believe that that's the key to the ripple effect, uh, the love, the humanity, the belonging uh, that can transform um, and create opportunity uh, for all. Well, John, uh, having learned more about your organization, I have a, a greater sense of how precious your personal time is. And I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me to tell your story. I encourage anyone listening to learn more about YouthBuild, to support you however they can. You are the human personification of optimism and hope. Uh, you've inspired me, and I, I'm sure you're going to inspire everyone who listens to this episode. So I can't thank you enough for you, your time, and the work that you're doing. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with you and, and for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, John. So, I hope you can see why I suggested that you might be moved by listening to John and learning about his life story. In this last section, he mentioned that no one should be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. I first heard that expression from Brian Stevenson, who related it to what drove him to do his legal defense work, and it's always stayed with me. And again, when we think of the worst thing that John Valverde ever did, we can see now that it has hardly defined him nor has it limited the great work he's gone on to do. And I'll bring it back to the words of John's father when he encouraged him with the optimistic goals to achieve in his life, meaning, purpose, and freedom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Blue Sky with my guest, John Valverde of YouthBuild USA. I hope you'll listen to more episodes and also that you might take a few minutes to give us a rating or review. We'd love to hear how you think we're doing. And if you're enjoying this subject matter, please check out and follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>